John chapter 16. What we've been up to for six weeks now is a series entitled, Who Do I Say That I Am? Looking at the things that Jesus said about himself. So he said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the true vine. He also said, I am the door or the gate. He also said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And we're sort of continuing that today and also very much holding uh, tightly to what the day of Pentecost actually means for the church. In John chapter 16 and verse 17, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. I've got the wrong reference. It's not 1617. It's 167. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And he says to the disciples, so this is, this is the upper room. This is, well, this is, may well be walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is in the same context as the true vine statement that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. And he's teaching them about the Holy Spirit extensively in these chapters. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, that's the term he uses to refer to the Holy Spirit. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the, the thing about Jesus that I want to look at today is that he is, he may not be making an I am statement here, but he is declaring himself to be the one who sends the Holy Spirit or who gives the Holy Spirit. So the title for today, this is me not quoting Jesus, but me paraphrasing, I am the giver of the Spirit. Now, we're going to look a little bit later at what the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament was actually about. Uh, Before we do that, I want to throw a question at you. What is the Holy Spirit? And I hope you're offended by how I put that question because I've intentionally put it very, very badly. What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a what. The Holy Spirit is a who. The question would be better placed, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is personal. He is not a force. He is not just something floating about out there in the ether. The Holy Spirit is a person. We read, for example, in Ephesians 4, that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. That is a personal attribute, not the attribute of a force or a form of energy or anything random like that. The Holy Spirit is God. We read and we, we, we theologically put together what we understand from the Scriptures that God is one, but He is also three. The Father the Son, King Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, what we refer to as the Trinity. It is beyond our understanding exactly how that works, but it is a fact of from the Word of God that God exists as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit, the three together as one. He is not a force. He's not a feeling. He is a person. So let's, let's get our language right and refer to the Holy Spirit as he rather than it. 
If I was to say to you today that I've got a wonderful new idea for church and that we're going to do Christianity without Jesus, you would probably very quickly be disconnecting and finding someone else to listen to. The notion of doing Christianity with Je- without Jesus is, of course, really dumb. It's foolish in, in the extreme. But to try to do Christianity without the Holy Spirit is equally stupid. It is utterly foolish and unbiblical to think that we can do Christianity without the Holy Spirit. Yet, so many people seem to be trying to do that. It's almost like going into a car showroom and you sit down, you look at a car, and, and you, you like the look of the car, and the, everything, everything's great, and, and you're agreeing and, and ready to do the deal for the car. And as you're about to do the deal, the, the dealer says to you, now, I need you to be aware that there's no engine in that car. And you say, aye, that's fine. That's no bother at all. I'll push it. But that's the way a lot of us live our Christian lives. There's no engine. We have pushed the Holy Spirit to the sidelines, beyond the sidelines, out into the fringes somewhere where we don't engage with him. We don't learn about him. We don't talk about him. Uh, we try to do Christianity on a, you know, if Meatloaf was to sing about it, he would say two out of three ain't bad. We go for the Father and we go for the Son, but we push the other one off to the fringes. And it's like doing the car without an engine and thinking, I'll push it. You will not push the car for very long before you'll get fed up. And you will not live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit for very long before you get fed up. He is the engine. He is the power source in our lives to live the way God has called us to live. And on the day of Pentecost in the church's calendar, which is 50 days after Easter weekend, we look back to the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. Now, Rach came to me earlier this week and she said, I've got a question in my RE assignment that I can't answer. Now, when your dad's a preacher, you sort of probably have an expectation that he might be able to help you with your RE assignment. And she came to me and I said, you know, go ahead, what, what, what is the question? Uh, it was an assignment about Pentecost, which is quite encouraging that the, the RE lessons were in tune with the, the calendar of the church. And the question was this, why did God send the Spirit specifically on the day of Pentecost? Why do you think he chose that day to send the Spirit? And I did what all teachers do and what all dads do. You sort of bluff for a wee while and you're like, ah, well, maybe it was because of this and maybe it was because of that. Uh, and then after about a minute or a minute and a half of bluffing, you say, do you know what? I don't actually know which was probably devastating for the child because her father, who is a Pentecostal and who preaches God's word and who knows why the Spirit came and knows how he came and I know who sent the Holy Spirit and I know why we need the Holy Spirit. But whenever I was hit with a question, why did he come on the day of Pentecost and not any other day, I was stumped. (laughs) And I'm just having a wee personal confession here with you about that. And I thought, I better go away and try and figure this out. And that's what I've done over the the last few days, is try to understand why did the Spirit come 
on the day of Pentecost. And I actually struggled because a lot of books that I have, I, I find a lot of good stuff about the Holy Spirit, a lot of good stuff about what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, but nobody was explaining to me why it was that particular day. So I did a bit, of, a bit more research, and, and here's what, 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 I've, what I've been educated by this week. We need to go to the book of Leviticus. Chapter 23, you heard me right, we're going to Leviticus. Do you get excited when we go to Leviticus? It's chapter 23 of Leviticus. Let me just say it again, we're in the book of Leviticus this morning, chapter 23. And I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. Now, Leviticus 23 talks about the feasts that the people of Israel had to observe every year, or some of them more frequently than that, some of the the things they had to do. Uh, Passover is mentioned, and Tabernacles is mentioned a bit later in chapter 23. We've talked about both of those already over the last few weeks. But in the middle, in verse 15, there is another feast. And if you have a Bible that's got headings in it at the, at the start of paragraphs, those headings have been put there by translators. They were not in the original text. But what your heading might say is the Feast of Weeks. That is the Old Testament feast that came to be known as Pentecost, this Feast of Weeks. Let's see if we can get our head around what actually happened. It says in verse 15 of Leviticus 23, From the day after the Sabbath... The day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. Now, this is the Feast of Weeks. It happened exactly 50 days after Passover. So once Passover was done, you counted off seven weeks, That included seven Sabbath days as well, seven Saturdays in the Jewish understanding, seven Sabbaths. And after those seven weeks, that's 49 days, the following day was the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as the Feast of Pentecost. It happened on the 50th day. You've probably already figured out that in maths, pent means five, you know, pentagon, your five-sided polygon. Pentecost means 50 days. So it's, it's, it's on the 50th day after Passover. They have this feast. It's called also the Feast of Weeks because they count off seven weeks and then have this feast on the next day. Now, what do they do at it? One of the things they do in verse 16 is they present an offering of new grain. Now, this is the first offering of the wheat harvest. These details are important. Stick with me. You should know by now we're going somewhere. It's the first day of the wheat harvest. And the first sheaf of wheat that was brought in was offered to the Lord as a thanksgiving for his faithfulness in providing another harvest. So this this feast of weeks, this Pentecost, marked the beginning of of harvest season in the wheat growing year. It was pretty much exclusively an agricultural festival. 
I love the Jews because the Jews love food. And basically every time there was a harvest or there was some reason to get the food out and have a feast and celebrate, they did it. I really like that and I think we should continue that in the church. But they were good at celebrating anything to do with harvest, anything to do with agriculture and food. They did that well. And what Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, was about initially was the wheat harvest beginning. The wheat harvest beginning. Um, And then over time, it came to also be connected with the giving of the law and the establishment of a covenant. So that is what the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament is about. Now, there's another 50 in the Old Testament. Another period where the number 50 is involved that is very closely connected to Pentecost. And to understand this before we get to the New Testament and get to Jesus and get to the church, we have to go to Leviticus 25. Now this is two Leviticus passages in one sermon. Mm-hmm. Leviticus chapter 25, and I want to read verses 8 to 10. We're going somewhere. I'm giving you lots of little jigsaw pieces, and they're all going to come together. Yeah? Leviticus 25, verse 8. Let me tell you that at the start of Leviticus 25, the people are commanded that every seven years they are to allow the land to have a rest. So God in creation uh, on the seventh day rested, commands people likewise to take a day of rest once a week, and also commanded his people at the start of Leviticus 25 that one year in seven was to be a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, the land was to get a rest. So you weren't to plow your fields. You weren't to sow any new crops. You weren't to harvest any crops. You were to allow the land to lie fallow and to rest for a year before resuming working the land. Now, verse 8. Count off seven Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven years. So that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month on the Day of Atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for each one of you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Now, let's try to weave this together. Feast of weeks, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. That's seven weeks and one day, the 50th day. Seven Sabbaths, and then the 50th day was the Feast of Weeks. There is then this glorified feast, this, this, this year of jubilee, which also, importantly, was known as the year of the Lord's favor. And it happened every 50 years. So just like in Pentecost, you would take a week, you'd have a Sabbath, another week, you'd have a Sabbath, and after seven weeks of doing that, you'd have the Feast of Weeks. Here you have seven years. 
with a Sabbath year, and then another seven years with another Sabbath. And once you've done that seven times, 49 years, the 50th year is called the year of Jubilee. It was awesome. The year of Jubilee involves slaves getting set free because God hates poverty. And God hates multi-generational poverty where people are born in poverty and have no hope of getting out of it. God hates that. And what happened was frequently if a person got into debt and they could not pay their debts and they could not make provision for their families, they would sell themselves into slavery willingly in order to be able to provide for their families. But the rule was that on the year of Jubilee, those slaves were to be set free. So that you could not have the situation where someone was sold into slavery and their children born in slavery and their grandchildren born in slavery so that you have a rich upper class getting more and more wealthy on the backs of poor people who cannot get out of a cycle of poverty. So slaves were set free in the year of Jubilee. Awesome. Just fantastic. You know, you didn't have to buy your freedom. You, did, you were set free. You were released because God hates poverty and he will not allow an ongoing cycle of poverty to continue. Not only were slaves to be set free, but land was to be restored back to the original family that owned it. So on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, let's say I had run out of money and I had sold some of my family property in order to get some money, at the end of the 50th year, whoever bought that property from me has to give it back to my family again. And again, the purpose of that is so that you cannot have a small number of wealthy people accumulating a grotesque amount of money and land on the backs of poorer people who can't afford to keep their land. This year of Jubilee was awesome. It was a fantastic year of freedom, of celebration, of having your property returned. It was a year when God leveled the playing field, really, for people so that no one could take advantage of anyone else. It was a tremendous celebration every 50th year. And the day of Pentecost that happened once a year was like a mini Jubilee that happened once every 50 years. It's against all of that background that we're going to soon move into the New Testament. Hopefully you've understood that a little bit. Let's go, first of all, to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And and start trying to pull the pieces together a little bit. Isaiah 61. The prophet looks forward to a time when someone will be able to say these words. Isaiah 61. Listen carefully. The Spirit, okay, so we're starting off here and we're associating the Holy Spirit with what's about to be said. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, And release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what you've got here is Isaiah looking forward to a time when someone will be able to say, The Spirit has come upon me 
in order to proclaim a great jubilee, a year of God's favor, a season in which people will be set free, that debts will be canceled. That's another thing that happened in the jubilee year. If you had debt, it was canceled. And Isaiah wants to know who is it that's going to come and be able to say the Spirit of God is upon me to make a declaration to the world that a great jubilee time has come. Well, if you go to Luke 4, you find out exactly who it is about who those words are written. Because in Luke 4, Jesus stands up one Sabbath in the temple or in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah And if you look at verse 18 of Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It's the poor that were helped out whenever Jubilee came about. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release of the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he says in verse 21 to those who were watching and listening to him in the synagogue, he says, today that scripture is fulfilled. There's going to be a jubilee and the Holy Spirit is associated with it. The Spirit is upon me to proclaim jubilee, to proclaim this release for prisoners, cancelling of debts, restoration of land. Jesus says, I'm the one who has come to do that. Now, for those of you that know anyone who still has to do their RE assignment, you can tell them to write all that down, give it to their teacher, and walk away with a smile on their face. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and see what happened on the day of Pentecost. Why did the Spirit come on that day, and not the day before it, or the day after it, or some other day in the, in the year? In Acts 2, what Jesus said about himself in Luke when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Acts chapter 2, that basically got expanded over the whole church, over the whole people of God. Let's read Acts 2, the first few verses. When the day of Pentecost came... Or what what actually that says, and you'll catch it in some translations, you'll catch it if you have a peep at at a a Greek interlinear. It says, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. So it's not just a sort of um, a calendar reference when this particular, you know, on this particular day. It's more a sense of there's an Old Testament thing going on in the background that is being fulfilled on this particular day. When the day of Pentecost came, fulfilled, was fully come, they were all together in one place. This is the disciples, the other followers of Jesus. They're in an upper room. It's 50 days after the Passover, 50 days after his crucifixion, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The day of Pentecost, 
Now, I hope you can pull this together. The day of Pentecost. Going back to the Old Testament, Feast of Weeks, the day of Pentecost at the end, the 50th day at the end of the Feast of Weeks, or, the, or marking the Feast of Weeks. Going back to the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, the year when people got set free. The Holy Spirit, who anointed Jesus to proclaim freedom and anointed him to proclaim that the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, was about to begin, that Holy Spirit is poured out on the entire church. It's the 50th day since Passover. It's the 50th day since Jesus' crucifixion. It's on the day that they celebrated the start of a new harvest. Mm -hmm. A new harvest. On the day that all around Jerusalem and all around Judea and throughout Israel, people were celebrating the first day of a harvest, the Holy Spirit just splashes down on the church and completely baptizes and immerses the young church in its presence, his presence and his power. On that day, it was the same day as the beginning of a harvest. Do you think that God wants us to learn something about the Holy Spirit because he came on the day of the start of the wheat harvest? He came on the day that was associated with the Jubilee year, the day when slaves were set free and cancelled debts. Do you think God wants us to learn something about the coming of the Spirit? The fact that he came on the day of Pentecost. He could have come on any day, any day he wanted, but he came on the day of Pentecost. Do you think God wants us to learn something about the work of the Spirit in terms of setting people free and cancelling debts. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on the church on that 50th day, Pentecost Jubilee. So what should the church be doing? The church should be harvesting. The Spirit has come to empower the church for a harvest. And you will actually read sometimes in the Gospels where Jesus compares the people of the kingdom of God to wheat that is being gathered in. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the first day of the wheat harvest. The Holy Spirit's work is to empower people to do some harvesting in the kingdom of God. What else should the church be doing? Proclaiming that debts are cancelled. Many, many people bear a burden of debt throughout their lives. Whether Not necessarily real debt, but a, a feeling of shame and guilt and debt and condemnation because of sin. That there is a debt that they cannot pay to a holy God because of their sin. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed us. He anointed Jesus, foretold in Isaiah 61, fulfilled in Luke chapter 4, and now just splurged out on the whole church in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed us to proclaim that debts are cancelled, that there is now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whenever we ever feel condemnation about something in the past, that is not Jesus, that is not the Holy Spirit, that is the evil one trying to suck us back into guilt and shame. God's word says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost was that the church would be able to proclaim to people, your debts are cancelled. There is no condemnation. But how many people have actually come to the church and felt condemned? There's a story told, I can't remember whose book I read it in, but a guy who was... I think he was ministering, it, it might have been um, Tony Campolo ministering to prostitutes in Brazil and, and, and encouraging one of them to go to church. And her response to him was, I feel bad enough, why would I go there? <laughs> because of that perception that if I go to church, I'll feel worse, I'll feel more condemned. No, no, no. No, no. If the, if the Holy Spirit is at work in a group of people, it will be a place where there will be no condemnation and no shame. There will be debts cancelled. The church should be setting people free. Jesus again, what did he say? The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. What's he anointed me to do? He's upon me and he has anointed me to proclaim freedom for the captives. And throughout the Bible, there is this, this image of slavery to sin. That sin is a taskmaster, that it enslaves people, that it drives them, that it ruins their lives. And the Spirit on Jesus, and now the Spirit on the church, is here to empower us to declare to people that they can be free. Also, one of the reasons that the Spirit, I believe, is poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost is to let us know that we should be busy ensuring that justice is done and that the oppressed and the, the marginalized in society are looked after. Because the year of Jubilee, and I keep repeating it because I want you to get it, the year of Jubilee, that 50th year, which, which, which was linked to the annual Feast of Pentecost, that year of Jubilee was a year in which the ground was leveled and multi-generational poverty was not allowed by God. He said, no, you will release the slaves who have sold themselves into slavery. And if you're, if you're all sort of you know, uptight about the fact that there was slavery in the Old Testament, slave owners had to look after their slaves. They had to look after them well. They had to look after their welfare, their health. They had to repay them adequately. It was not oppressive. It was a reality of culture and God's people were to look after their slaves. But a slave in the year of Jubilee was set free and land was returned so that you could not have social injustice. You could not have grotesquely wealthy people getting more wealthy on the backs of poor people. You could not have the scenario where kids were born into an impoverished family and from day one had no hope of ever getting out of that, which is the reality around us. God wouldn't have it. And he said, you will on this year of Jubilee, this year of joy, you will release your slaves and you will return the land that you have bought. He says later in Leviticus 25, the land belongs to me. 
God says, I own the land. All of you that, that think you own it, you're only tenants of it. You've only got it under lease. You're looking after it for, for a season. But the land belongs to me. Give it back to, to, to the family that are supposed to be looking after it in this year of Jubilee. And if, if the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost to remind us of Jubilee, then the church that is filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit, should be busy about social justice, should be busy about looking after, for, looking after the needs of the poor, the marginalized, the pushed down, those who are rejected by society. Frankly, if a church, if we are only looking after our own happy, clappy congregation, making sure everybody's you know, got what they want and everybody's got all their boxes ticked and all their, their needs met, if we're only doing that, we're not filled with the Holy Ghost. We haven't encountered Pentecost because Pentecost and a full, a full uh, experience of the Holy Spirit will drive a people to see that the oppressed are looked after, that slaves are set free, that debts are cancelled. I think social justice in the church can become an idol to people and it's something we need to be careful about, that we don't become champions of social justice and forget that we are lovers and followers of Jesus. It's got get it the right way around, folks, because because Jesus can get can get sort of neglected and pushed to a corner while we go off and, and try to change the world with social justice. Jesus first, passion for him, love and devotion for him, abiding in him. And then the outcome of that, the outcome of him filling us with his spirit is that we are people who are then inspired and empowered to do the work of social justice in the world around us. Why did he come? Why did the spirit come on the day of Pentecost? It's interesting to go back and look at those Old Testament feasts and try to understand what he has come to empower us to do. Harvest, proclamation of freedom. So when is a Christian filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit? Some people use the language filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people use the language baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some people believe it happens at conversion. Some people believe it happens at a later stage and therefore you'll, you'll sometimes hear the term second blessing. Some people believe it happens during water baptism. When you read the book of Acts, you will find multiple repeated fillings of the Spirit. It, wasn't, it was not a single one-off thing. Once you've been filled with the Spirit, that's you done. There were multiple fillings of the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians that we need to be filled with the Spirit as an ongoing reality not just as a one-off thing. And I want to tell you that it is not worth arguing with people about when it happens, okay? I'm not even going to tell you my opinion. If you want to know my opinion, after lockdown, take me out, buy me a nice latte, and I'll tell you my opinion. But I'm not going to try to argue it here. There are bigger fish to fry. What I will tell you and what I will argue is the utter necessity of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't care really when you believe that that happens, but it must happen. There must be a filling and an indwelling of the Holy Spirit if you are to live the Christian life. I won't fight with you over when it happens, but I will fight with you if you say it's not necessary. 
we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are spirit people and we are made alive by God's Spirit within us. You won't push the car for very long. The car without the engine is like the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Once you try pushing that car, you'll not get it out of the showroom before you'll be fed up. And if you try to push the Christian life, and there's so many people I believe because they have not been taught adequately about the Holy Spirit, so many people are trying to push the Christian life. They're doing their best. They are sincere of heart. They are desperate to live in a way that pleases God but they're doing all of it out of their own effort, trying to keep rules, trying to to do what's right, pushing the car without the engine. And God all the while is saying, I have given you my spirit. Will you allow me to fill you, to empower you, to be that driving force within you that makes you live well? Too many Christians have got God the Father pretty well sussed out and they've got Jesus pretty well sussed out. But the Spirit, they're just nowhere on the Holy Spirit. That is a tragedy and that is an indictment on church leadership that has not adequately taught people about the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John, where we read earlier at the start, Jesus, the giver of the Spirit, The night that he is literally, if we've got this right over the past couple of weeks, he is literally walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed, to be beaten, and to be brutally executed. What does he talk about? He talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, guys, I'm not going to be here anymore physically. I'll be with you. You'll you'll see me for a short while. They saw him for a short while, for 40 days after the resurrection. But after that, he's gone, physically gone. But he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Spirit. My Father will send the Spirit in my name. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the only way to fly. It really is. The Christian life changes from something that is dry and that is, that is effort to something that is alive. I wish it brought, I meant to bring the, the Jesus Storybook Bible with me. If any of you have young kids and you've got the Jesus Storybook Bible, today read them the chapter about Pentecost and note what happens in the pictures. I love it. Whoever wrote the, the pictures, uh, some guy with a weird name that I can't remember, but whoever did the illustrations in that little Bible absolutely had it right. Because at the start of the passage or the section about Pentecost, it's black and white. And the, the, the disciples and the, the followers of Jesus are all huddled together in the dark, black and white, fearful in the upper room. And you turn the page and there's just bright color bouncing off the page. The Spirit has come and life is different. He brings vibrancy and energy and color to the Christian life. To even talk about a Christian life without the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, is a contradiction in terms. It is not a possibility. And if it's something that you have been trying to do and that you're listening to me and thinking, this is new to me, I haven't heard this before, I would say to you, today on the day of Pentecost, 
Get down on your knees before God and just ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Don't feel condemned that this is maybe something that you haven't given much attention to for a few years. But embrace him now. Embrace him now. Why did it happen then? Um, I'm going to continue this over the next three weeks. I've got three reasons here. There are lots of reasons. I've got three reasons why the Holy Spirit came. I'm only going to give you one of them now very briefly and then I'm done and I'm going to save the other two for the next couple of weeks before I pass out with the smell of the fumes in this place. We've looked at why he came on the particular day of Pentecost and everything associated with that. I hope that has blessed you. It's blessed me this week and I'm glad for an RE question that prompted me to look into it more. But why did he come at all? I want to very briefly give you one of the reasons and then I'm going to pray for you um, that you will be filled afresh with the Holy Ghost and experience and encounter his power and his color. But one of the things that, again, is it's just been a, a sort of a new thought, I guess, or a slightly new thought for me this week. Not a completely new thought, but just this particular slant on it is, is when we think about temples, now, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that, and, and you know if you've been tracking with us during these lockdown sessions on YouTube for the past 10 or 11 weeks, way back at the start of them, we, we talked about new creation. And we know how big a deal new creation is in the work of, of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. But we read in, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the, the Spirit is there in the work of creation. Now something that may be new to you as a thought, but I guarantee you'll agree with it once you look at it, is that creation was originally designed as a temple. A temple is not just a, a sort of a stone building. A temple is a place where the presence of God is manifested and when God, where God meets with people. And creation was originally designed as God's temple, the whole thing. God did not want to be confined to a temple, to a tabernacle. He wanted to inhabit the entire creation and if you read Genesis 1 and look at what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 and then go and read about how the tabernacle and how the temple were designed, how they were decorated, the features that are there, you will realize that those features are there to mimic creation. For example, you'll, you'll see cherubim, you'll see angels embroidered into the, the curtains of the temple and the tabernacle. There are angels at the Garden of Eden. You will see the colors used in the, in the fabric around the temple and the tabernacle. Those colors are blue and purple and they are the colors of the sky. If you go out and look at the sky as the sun is setting and you see all those blues and purples, those are the colors in the tabernacle because those were meant to represent the sky as part of God's creation. There were plants and there were trees. There was a candlestick that looked like a tree, just like there were trees in the garden. Creation was God's temple. 
And the Holy Spirit was present in creation, creating a place where God could dwell. Now stick with me. In Exodus 31, you read about the very first person in the Bible who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love this. Exodus 31, we're nearly done. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, great name, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Do you know what? If you are are creative, if you're good at art, or if you're good at making stuff, whether that's thought of as being artistic or not, that is a sign of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I, I, I just love to see what Christians get up to. Um, Aaron's been posting a few pictures over this last week or two of some things he's been building about the house and the garden. Uh, and it's been amazing. And I was around at, at Ashley's for a socially distanced barbecue in the garden yesterday afternoon. And he's the most phenomenal barbecue I have ever seen. Creativity and skill whether it's gardening or art or, or, or building things or joinery, that's a sign of God. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves it. When you kids draw a picture and you feel joy, that's the Holy Ghost doing that in you, gifting you with those abilities and, and enjoying them with you. But what I want you to get here is, before I totally digress, this, this guy Bezalel, first person in the Bible who is filled with the Holy Spirit, What does he do? He's a craftsman in the temple. Now, I've often before made the the connection between him being filled with the Holy Spirit and being a craftsman, but he's a craftsman in the temple. He's filled with the Spirit in order to create a dwelling place for God. The Spirit is active in creation in Genesis 1 to create a dwelling place for the presence of God. The Spirit is active in this guy Bezalel, whose job then is to create a dwelling place in the tabernacle for the presence of God. When you get into the New Testament in Ephesians 2, you don't have to go there, you can just sort of listen to me and enjoy the ride. When you get to the end of Ephesians 2, we read, In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Again, with the association of the spirit and a dwelling place for God. And in Ephesians 2, that dwelling place for God is the church. I sometimes picture it as each one of us almost like a stone. And when we come together, the stones are all stacked on top of each other and there is a dwelling place for God. But you understand the Spirit is central to that. And the last one is 1 Corinthians 3. Daniel quoted it during the week in a a lovely message in the WhatsApp group. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's Spirit lives in you? Why did the Spirit come? He came to prepare a dwelling place for God, 
just like he did in Genesis in creation, just like he did in Bezalel in Exodus when the tabernacle was being made a dwelling place for God, just as he does in the church and as he does in individuals. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost so that you individually and that the church corporately would be the dwelling place for God. That's awesome. That God would dwell among us. What is the definition of a Christian from last week? Someone whom, of whom it can be said, abide in me and I will abide in you. Live in me, Jesus says, and I will live in you. How does that happen? It happens because of the Holy Spirit. Why did the Spirit come? Lots of reasons why he came. We'll go into some of them over the next week or two. But he came so that we would become the place where God abides. Chew on that as you sit in the sunshine today on Pentecost Sunday. And enjoy the reality that God wants to live in you. And he has poured out his spirit to make that a reality. I'm done, but I want to pray for you.